Tonight I would like to present a model of the human being and of life. I could even say a mandala of human possibilities that I find very interesting. It's a way of looking at who we are that can be very clarifying and supportive for insight. Of course, all models and all ways of talking about life are quite limited. Life, human life, is such an unfathomable mystery. This is by no means an attempt to explain it, but perhaps it can be a helpful approach to understand the meaning and the significance of both self and non-self, of who and what we are, and of who and what we're not. Last night, Carol spoke about Sakaya Ditti, the wrong view, belief, and conviction in an independently existing I, or self. Here I'll try the opposite approach, looking at what we actually are, like to talk about the five kanda, or skandhas. The word kanda usually gets translated as aggregates. It's not such a nice thought to see ourselves as a bunch of aggregates, I find. Yet, the Pali word isn't much more flattering. <laughs> Pali, it means heap, haufen. So what we are is five heaps, fünf haufen. One thing that's important to understand here is that it is five collections of functions. It's five different kinds of dynamic processes. And that's who or what we are. The full name here is Upadana Tanda, collections of functions and events we grasp at, we hold on to, we identify with. It is seeing and grasping this five Kanda as I, me, mine, that cre creates all our inner suffering. So it might be meaningful to see what they are, to understand how they function, maybe to find more helpful ways of relating to them, and to see what their innate nature might be. Before I get into them one by one, I'd like to bring in another dimension than the one that is usually looked at in Buddhism. In addition to seeing that each one of these khandhas is a problem when grasped at by attachment, and that the problem is solved when identification and that attachment completely cease, 
It is the view that each and every one of these khandhas is revealed as a profound Buddha wisdom when fully liberated and recognized in its innate nature. So this is not only saying that what we are doesn't have to be a problem, but what we are is really of the same basic makeup as that of all Buddhas. So it's really an amazing statement, a very uplifting view. It says that we are not the chickens we sometimes believe to be pecking around in the dirt, but that we really are eagles capable of flying, soaring way up in the wide open skies. It's when the empty, ungraspable, unborn nature of the five khandhas is deeply realized that their innate nature is revealed. I'd like to try to convey a sense of what this could mean, connected with the khandhas. I know for most of us that Buddha wisdom part isn't very practical in an immediate sense because probably the majority of us is not going to attain this level the next two hours or days. And yet, what it is meant to do, even in a complete beginner's practice, is to change that belief, that attitude about who we really are or who we already are right now. If only we would trust, if only we would wake up to it. Certainly for us Westerners, suffering of a lack of self-appreciation as much as we do, it could certainly be very supportive and very healing we begin with the conviction, with the trust, in the fact that we're really Buddhas, though sleeping Buddhas. But what it takes is simply to awaken to who we already are. It's very different from being in the wrong place, not being quite okay, having to do a lot of hard work walking from A to B, whereby B seems to recede as we walk, never actually seems to get any closer to wake up to what we already are. It's the same, and yet quite different. So the five khandhas, they are form or Physical bodily elements, rupa. Second is vedana, or the capacity to experience, to feel, to sense. Number three is discernment. They are all the functions of perception and discernment. Number four, 
emotional, mental and volitional functions. And number five, consciousness itself. So let's look at them one by one. The first one is form, or rupa, which refers to all bodily, physical, material forms. According to Buddhist tradition, form is made up of four basic elements. It's not the scientific distinction, but an experiential distinction. Earth, water, fire, and air. What is meant by these four elements is also not so, some esoteric, basic substance, but rather different manifestations and functions that rule physical or bodily reality. Earth element refers to extension, the fact that material things take up space. And this can be directly perceived and experienced as hardness, softness, and tightness, and looseness. In meditation, it's to these experiences that we bring our mindfulness to, rather than staying at the level of concepts, such as, for example, body, knee, or hand. We connect with the actual sensation of hardness, softness, tightness, looseness, earth element. Fire element refers to temperature, the fact that material things vibrate at certain rates and thus can be directly perceived and felt as temperature, cold or cool or warm or hot or burning hot, whole range. So we might sit here and the thought comes, oh, it's so hot in here. When at that moment we bring our attention to the body, what do we see? A range of changing sensations of warmth and heat. That's the level we want to pay attention. Air element refers to motion, the fact that material things move. And thus, air can be air element can be perceived and felt as motion, as pressure, vibration. Water element refers to cohesion. The fact that material is held together by the forces of cohesion. And it is said that it cannot be felt or perceived by the body sense, because it's that which connects and thus merges and dissolves the impact of things that meet and touch. Can others say it can be felt as flowing? Also part of the aggregate of form are the tongue, the tongue organ and taste, the nose and smell, the ear organ and sound, the eyes and visual form. These sense objects, again, are very much part of our meditation, of our mindfulness. Eating meditation, being mindful of smell, of taste, taste while chewing, being aware of seeing, 
maybe outside when we look at things or when we pass someone and see them, to be mindful of what happens at the sense doors. Now when you bring a consistent mindfulness to these experiences or events, we start to see the impermanent, changing, and also the ingraspable nature of it all. And doing that, seeing that, experiencing that over and over, we begin to ease our grip. Allow, accept, let be. Very freeing whenever we do it. Now in terms of the dimension of the innate Buddha wisdom, when in verity practice the empty, ungraspable, unborn nature of the form Kanda is realized, then all forms are recognized as mere appearance. They're seen much like reflections in a mirror, maybe like rainbows, like mirages. Allowing for a mind and heart that is undisturbed, that is at peace with all things. Then it's the so-called mirror-like wisdom which dawns. This wisdom is symbolized by Buddha Akshobhya, meaning awakened, unmoved, with the earth-touching gesture, much like the Buddha's gesture when he sat under the tree, facing the Maras and remaining unmoved in his mind. And here, this is not some Buddha somewhere, but it's who we really are. That's the interesting point. It's who we really are. It's that inner place of freedom, of undisturbedness, which is our innate nature, and which is a refuge. It's a refuge within ourselves. So the first aggregate, the first condis form. The second one is the capacity to experience, to feel, experiential feeling tone, Vedana. It's an often misunderstood concept in Buddhist teachings, I find. It's probably because we have no proper equivalent for this concept or word Vedana in our languages. So I call it feeling tone or capacity to experience or maybe the experiential texture of each and every experience. It's how an experience feels. Blissful, pleasant, neutral, unpleasant, painful. It's not feelings or emotions that's meant, but it's the experiential texture of any moment's experience. For example, the thought of self-judgment 
and condemnation might probably feel unpleasant. That unpleasantness is Vedana, not the thought. A beautiful view or sight probably feels pleasant the moment we open to it. That pleasant aspect of the experience is Vedana. A bitter medicine probably creates an unpleasant experience of taste. That unpleasantness is Vedana. Not the taste itself, but the unpleasant aspect of the taste. An in-breath might have a neutral feeling tone. That tone of neutrality is Vedana. A moment of anger might feel quite painful. That painful aspect of the experience is Vedana, not the anger itself. A tension in the neck might be unpleasant. Again, that unpleasantness or the unpleasantness of that sensation is Vedana. Vedana is defined simply as experience or perhaps as that, as that element of our being that has the capacity to experience. And there are infinite varieties of Vedanas on the scale from, from blissful to painful, from intense to subtle, with bodily, sensory, emotional and mental events. Perhaps one could also say that it's the receptive part of our capability to experience, that which receives. Vedana is an aspect of our being with enormously far-reaching implications and effects because it is to Vedana that we react with attachment or aversion, with desire or hatred, with jealousy or fear, all the rest, which is what causes suffering. That's why it's such an important area to look into, to be aware of. important in our practice if we want to be free of suffering. Sometimes you can take a whole sitting or a whole walking or a whole sitting and walking, just being aware, or even a whole day, just being aware of the feeling tone of Vedana of every experience. Saying, okay, this is pleasant, pleasant, neutral, neutral, unpleasant, unpleasant. It's probably going to be a lot of neutral if you really pay attention the clearer we are aware we see Vedana, the more we'll have a choice with our minds reacting with like and dislike and all the proliferations that come from it, or responding with wisdom and equanimity. That's very much where freedom lies. It's in this given fact that we all, all beings, experience Vedana, that we're most, all beings are most alike. Sisters and brothers in disease, old age and death, as Carol's teacher put it. All beings experience dukkha and sukha, success and failure, gain and loss, and the 10,000 joys and sorrows of existence. 
when the heart and mind realizes the empty, ungraspable, unborn nature of things, of all beings, then all sense of separation completely falls away and the wisdom of the equality of all beings dawns and great compassion arises. This is symbolized by the Buddha Ratnasambhava, shown in the gesture of generosity and giving, like Tara, the green Tara over there. It's the boundless open heart, fully connected with all of life. And again, it's our own innate nature. And that too is a true refuge within. The third aggregate is that of perception and discernment. This refers to those functions which perceive things, discern one thing from another, recognize them for what they are, give them names, and organize the raw experiential input or data into a meaningful pattern or a meaningful whole. Make sense out, out of a mess of inputs. Govinda, in his psychological attitude, quotes Shwe Zan Aung, however you pronounce that, describing how perception might work. He says, To be able to look at the rose and think or say, I see a rose. There is a number of complex processes of visual perception, discerning colors and forms, singling them out from the other surrounding shapes. They're running through the mind a few hundred thousand times until another process, the so-called synthetic process, starts to play which forms the entire composite image of the rose into a synthesis of the parts perceived beforehand. Then the process, grasping the meaning, runs through many times. Then lastly, grasping the name sets in, which makes up a name. If the name is already known, as in rose, three more processes run. A process called convention, a process called comparison, upon which the conclusion this is a rose, is formed. Finally, the, the process called name grasping applies the class name to the object, whatever that means. These complicated processes of imagination, memory, conception, discernment, judgment, and classification all follow one another so rapidly in succession that there's no rose. <laughs> the perceiver considers that he or she sees and recognizes the rose practically instantaneously, such as the complexity of the process distinguishable in an act of external perception. Who on earth is able to distinguish this? Uh, I wonder. My sense or guess is that this kanda 
is probably the one aspect of our being that's the most difficult to see because it is perception itself. Maybe almost like the eye trying to see itself. I know. A very important function of this khanda is the discernment of what is unwholesome and what is wholesome, of what leads to suffering and what leads to happiness and what leads to liberation. When the first mentioned mirror-like nature is recognized and the equality of all beings or of all of life is felt and realized, it becomes obvious that in such a web of connectedness and mutual dependency, everything that moves, all actions, must cause results. Means that all our actions of body, speech, and mind have effects, produce results, or in other words, create karma. You could say also, we practice all the time. When we practice, we practice. And then when we don't practice, it practices whatever comes along, whatever we think and say and do, and the motivation behind it. That's what is being practiced. What we think, say, or do, depending on the motivation behind it, causes results in ourselves, creates tendencies in our hearts and minds molds or influences our next actions and therefore our future. If we act out of unwholesome motivations, suffering will be the result. If we act out of wholesome motivations, happiness will be the result. To see and understand all aspects of ethical lawfulness completely clearly and correctly, is the function of the wisdom of clear discernment. It is symbolized by Buddha Amitabha in meditation posture. It's this wisdom which allows one to act in completely wholesome, helpful and liberating ways. So again, it's a refuge within we may not have fully developed or rather uncovered it, and yet it's a capacity, a quality within all of us. So the rapid, dynamic process of perception and discernment the third kanda. Of course, also involves the physical organs, the first kanda, the outer and inner phenomena that are perceived. And the feeling tone, Vedana arises with each sequence, that's the second kanda. And all of it is known by consciousness, the fifth kanda. And there is a constant ongoing response and reaction to all of it, which is what the fourth kanda is all about. The fourth, 
The fourth kanda we are made up of is formation and volitional activities and tendencies. Formation or volition is the active part of our heart and mind's function. Vedana was the receptive part. Formation, sankara, is the active function. It includes all the wholesome and unwholesome emotions and all mental factors and qualities. It includes greed, anger, hatred, delusion, including the factor of identification, as much as renunciation, kindness, compassion, wisdom. It includes sleepiness, distraction and restlessness, as much as wakefulness, collectedness and calm. It is the motivating and moving force behind all our actions of body, speech and mind. It is that which creates karma. All the intentions, motivations, which, which karma, karmically color and drive our actions are part of this aspect of this kanda. So we can say it's what can cause wars. It's actually what does cause wars. It's what creates immense suffering within human beings and in the world. And it is what can help heal, love, understand and liberate. It's all part of that kanda. Recognizing the empty, mirror-like nature of things, motivated by the compassion of the wisdom of equality of beings and fully discerning and understanding what is wholesome and skillful, this fourth kanta of volition and formation dawns as the all-accomplishing wisdom. In this one lives and acts for the welfare of beings, the welfare of all of life, effortly, effortlessly, joyful, fearless, and wise. And this is symbolized by the Buddha Amokasiddhi with the gesture of fearlessness who is engaged in bodhisattva activity. And again, it's really our innate nature. It's an incredible, wonderful capacity we really all have. So form, Vedana, discernment, and formation, volition. The fifth skanda or kanda is consciousness. Consciousness is defined as simply as what is clear and knowing. In itself, it is empty of form or content. 
in itself it does not have any form or color or shape. Thus it does not have a size or extension in space, cannot be located anywhere. So in this sense it's empty. Somewhat the way a mirror is in itself empty. It has to be empty so that it can reflect whatever comes in front of it. And it is reflecting whatever comes in front of it. Also, it's impartial. It just that does that job of reflecting. It doesn't shrink or cringe or lean a little forward depending on what comes in front of it. That's how consciousness works. But it's different from a mirror, of course, because it has the power to reflect or to know things. Or if one would want to describe the same capacity in different terms, consciousness is dynamic. It has the power to manifest appearances or manifest as appearances. And in this sense, it's very different from the mirror example. It is a power, it's an energy, and it has radiance, luminosity. It knows all things naturally, simultaneously right with their arising. Yet, it is also empty in an ultimate sense. Which means, if you look for it, you won't find it. So if and when the instructions are about knowing, it's very helpful beyond the side of knowing, so to speak. If you start to look for knowing, expecting to find something, to see it, it doesn't work because it's empty in an ultimate sense. When looking for it, Nothing can be found. There is nothing one can put one's finger on, as the Dalai Lama says. He uses that phrase quite a lot. Nothing one can put one's finger on. Yet, we know it's there. Because there is knowing. There are six kinds of consciousness, depending on their object. Or perhaps one could say, depending on their wavelength. They are visual consciousness, connected to the eyes, colors, shapes, auditory or sound consciousness, connected to the ear and sounds, olfactory smell consciousness, nose and smell, taste consciousness, connected with tongue and taste, tactile bodily consciousness, connected to body and the sensations, and mental-emotional consciousness connected to the heart-mind itself. In that way, their six consciousnesses, just in terms of their connection or contact. It's not that they look different. It's the same clear and knowing. This is what knows, this is what is conscious, unlike rocks or water or air. 
Now, as Carol pointed out, consciousness, vijnana in itself, is dumb. It needs to be upgraded by mindful insight, wisdom, in order to awaken to full capacity. It's dumb in the sense that it merely knows, reflects, period. All the time it does that. We cultivate, we could say, mindfulness, insight, wisdom, to upgrade it. When it does awaken to its full capacity, it becomes the wisdom of reality, the unshakable realization of the empty, ungraspable, unborn nature of all things. This is the profound peace of realization, while skillfully acting for the good of many. This too is our innate nature, our true being. This is by Nelson Mandela, and he uses his own spiritual language, slightly different. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It's our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You're a child of God. You're playing small does not serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It is not just in some of us, it is in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fears, our presence automatically liberates others. Nelson Mandela in his 1994 inaugural speech. So looking at the khandas again, connected to and supported by the body, form khanda, the inner and outer world is experienced or tasted by the Vedana khanda, experiential feeling tone, is discerned and given meaning by the perception discernment khanda, is acted upon by the khanda of formation and volition, and is known by the consciousness khanda. This is who we are, period. There's no one behind it. Sometimes I even have to be careful with when I use the words. This is us. It's not we have five skandhas. We could think we have five skandhas. No one in or above it, no one who has or is the khandas, except they themselves. They are themselves five khandas. 
and I do everything that's necessary to do. There's nothing missing. The feelings, the emotions, the consciousness, the stupidity, the wisdom, the Buddha nature, and all the rest is in there. What we are is this incredibly dynamic pattern of interacting elements and functions arising in closely linked dependency on each other with no static, no solid, no graspable entity anywhere within the process. And also, of course, no self or ego that we have to get rid of, as people sometimes believe. It's not that there's something too many, too much in there. It's just as absurd as to think that there's someone who has it all, to think there's some bad thing in there, ego, bad ego, my ego, that we have to throw out, simply to see. It's to see this clearly in direct experience and insight. That's very liberating. And in order to see it, all we need to do is to be awake, to watch and see. This is the understanding of interdependence or dependent arising or interbeing. The fact that all things of life, inner and outer, are tightly interconnected. It's the understanding of non-independent self-existence or, in short, non-self. Whenever we live in that understanding, we are free. And whenever our mind identifies with and grasps at any of the five khandhas, any aspect of it, any physical aspect, any feeling tone, any idea about things, any emotion or feeling we have, or even the knowing itself, we suffer. We think, see them, not even consciously, but identify with them as I or me or mine, we're bound. So here one could say lots of self, lots of problem. But of course, either way, there is no self. It's only a way of speaking. I'd like to share the illustration of the weather once again. That maybe makes a point here. Among Germanic peoples, the Germanischen Völker, between here and the East, North, East Sea, I imagine, up until about the 8th century, not exactly sure when, but uh, I think, everyone knew that it is Wotan. Maybe Thor, but let's say Wotan. <laughs> Who is the god of weather? and who makes the weather. He could send life-supporting rains or destructive storms and hail. Every kid knew this. It was clear. One knew this is how it is. There were temples and sacrificial sites where people went to pray, asking to be to be spared from droughts or floods. Probably they had to offer, in those days, life sacrifices. 
And sometimes Wotan would be merciful, other times not at all. That's how people often were living in fear and dread. Now today, when we watch Meteo on TV, Herr Buchali, or, or I don't remember her name, or Herr Kachelmann, maybe for some of you, <laughs> explain to us the satellite images of the weather situation over Europe. Then he points out the high and the low pressure areas. He speaks of hectopascal degrees, whereby a warm southwesterly wind comes about and therefore rain on you know, the north side of the Alps, Alpen Nordseite. <laughs> Whether we exactly understand how this works or not, everyone knows that the weather is a living system of co complex dependency and conditions which is in constant motion. And no one, for even a second, believes that Wotan or anyone else is the weather and decides where and for whom the sun should shine or rain and hail will fall. See? We may see these kinds of old pagan beliefs as very backward and smile at them condescendingly. Yet, isn't that perhaps exactly what we do with life here, with the life which we are? Of course, we know it's a living, dynamic system with blood pressure and emotional high or low pressure areas and all the rest. <laughs> but there is someone who has it. Who is it? That's me, Fred. And I think what's most amazing and interesting about it, I feel it. To me, it's not just a concept. It's a very strong conviction somehow. I, I know it. I am there. And yet, it is as naive as the belief in Wotan being the weather. It's exactly the same. It's interesting, isn't it? Mindful, clear comprehension, see through exactly this delusion, this self-delusion. And whenever mindful, clear comprehension sees through it, it's very unburdening. It's a relief. I could stop here, but want to just make one last point. In addition to there being no one in the five khandhas, each one of the khandhas, too, is empty of being substantial and graspable in itself. They, each one of the khandhas, too, arise and disappear moment to moment, depending on causes and circumstances. And when looked into, cannot, cannot be seen to exist in any substantial, real way. That's why a text says, Physical forms are like balls of foam. Feeling tones, vedana, it's like bubbles. Discerning perceptions, 
resemble mirages, Fata Morganas. Volitional factors, emotions and mind states, are like banana tree trunks. Banana tree trunks, they look like trunks, but actually they're just leaves that are rolled, they're hollow within. And consciousnesses resemble magical illusions. So it's a vivid show of mere appearance, sparkling and yet insubstantial. Understanding this transparent, ingraspable, empty nature directly is to realize ultimate reality. Is the heart and mind opening fully in non-grasping, in non-clinging, in peace and relief. And that's the way to realize our own innate nature of great peace and of deep connectedness with life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.